The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and there really is something very soothing about James Taylor's song, I must say, at a time when the nerves are a bit frazzled with the markets coming apart with the disasters in Japan. Uh, certainly, uh, I uh, would like to shorten that theme song so we can get on to the very important things that we have to talk about, but uh, at the same time, it's sort of good to take a deep breath sometimes and and realize uh, um, that probably things aren't as bad as they seem to be. At least that's what I hope. Well, uh, I'll remind you that I'm also the author of a newsletter called J. Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, Inc., is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling. We do have a special introductory offer, as we tell you every week. You can go to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Or call my assistant in New York during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I also like to remind you that probably the best website to go to to follow all that I do and my partners do is jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R media.com. There you can access this radio show. Uh, all three of our newsletters, videos that I do where I interview CEOs of mining companies, and also the appearances that I make occasionally at CNBC, Fox, and BNN. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show uh, on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. They are, for the first hour, Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, Legend Gold Mines, Calico Resources, Regus Gold, and Palangio Explorations. This week we have a couple of very fascinating guests on our show. For the first time, I have Nicole Foss with me. She is the editor of The Automatic Earth, and she writes there under the pen name Stonely. Uh, the subject of Nicole's master's thesis was nuclear safety. Subsequently, at Oxford uh, Institute for Energy Studies, her research field was power systems with a specific focus on nuclear safety in Eastern Europe. So we think the timing couldn't have been better in terms of what's transpiring in Japan uh, right now as we talk to you on this show. 
uh, in the uh, in the wake of the events that have just taken place, uh, as I say, it's just very difficult to find uh, somebody more uh, appropriate to address the issues that is that are on everybody's mind. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with Nicole at about 2:30, about half past the hour here. Later in today's show, Bob Hoy will be joining us again. Bob has been with us several times. Uh, he's going to provide his thoughts on the markets and on the natural disaster that's just taken place in Japan. But Bob really takes a longer-term look of the markets. Uh, he has, uh, I think, a historical perspective that is very, very helpful. Most people these days don't pay too much attention to history. Well, Bob Hoy does, Ian Gordon does, Robert Prechter does. A number of people we've had on this show are longer-term orientated, are able to look back into history and see the parallels. Uh, history never repeats exactly the same, but it rhymes, as they say. So Bob Hoy will be with us to talk about and put into perspective the events, uh, the natural uh, events. I might say that Bob also has a background in science. He was a geophysicist. So we've got a couple of people with scientific backgrounds today to put these markets uh, into perspective. And I might also mention that uh, Nicole, uh, Nicole Foss is also uh, a very astute market observer. So we'll be talking to her about what impact all of this going on in Japan uh, and the various things around the world taking place, how it might impact the markets. Of course, that's what the main focus of this show is. It's about uh, it's about the equity markets, it's about the precious metals markets, it's about how can we understand what is really going on, what is really causing the things to uh, occur. Uh, if we can understand what's going on, then the theory is that we're in a much better position to be able to, um, to, to, be able to uh, prepare ourselves um, for the markets. Um, one more person uh, who is able, I think, uh, to really help us a lot uh, in understanding what's going on is Chen Lin, and I believe, um, I think, yes, Chen is with us, so yes, we are going to be talking to Chen in just a minute. Later on, um, after we talk to Chen Lin, Bob Archer, he's the president of Great Panther Silver, uh, a new producer, relatively new producer in Mexico, doing very, very well, one of our biggest winners in our newsletter, up over 750%. Bob Archer will be with us to talk about Great Panther and how he plans to keep expanding and building wealth for his shareholders. Uh, and during the third hour of the show, I'm going to uh, share an email with, from a subscriber of mine uh, and a listener to this show who bet a sizable portion of his savings on one company. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit, I'm going to talk a little bit about the risks inherent uh, in the junior sector and why you need to be careful how you can avoid uh, um, losing a lot of money in a market. Uh, I think we are in a bull market of a lifetime for, for the gold mining shares. I think silver mining also looks very, very bullish. But that's not to say there's not a an awful lot of risk. There is. There's a tremendous amount of risk if you buy any one stock. So we're going to talk a little bit about the things to watch out for. I might also mention in advance of next week's show, I'm going to have Dr. John Mark Stoudy with me. Uh, Dr. Stoudy will be providing more detailed information and an education on investing in the junior mining sector. It's a sector that most people don't know too much about. It's wrought with huge amounts of risks, but at the same time can provide enormous upside potential as well. Uh, also, Roger Wiegand will be with me in the third hour of today's show, as will Ted Ohashi uh, from Investment Pitch. Uh, Ted and I are both on the advisory board of Investment Pitch, and Ted will have some ideas. He has some family members in Japan. Ted will also no doubt have some things to say about all of that. Well, anyway, before we go to Bob Archer, um, we have just a few minutes left, and I want to turn to Chen Lin, my partner. Welcome, Chen. Chen, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, Chen, welcome. Um, yes, uh, tell us what are your thoughts now. Uh, what is the latest, your understanding of what's going on uh, in Japan, and, and how is that impacting your, your view of the markets at the present time? Yeah, the market is a little bit chaotic. It's hard to see, uh, you know, uh, for what's going to happen, especially with the Japanese situation. Um, I, 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 we discussed last night. You know, it seems like the news media in, in, in the United States are are not really giving the real time information. You know, mm -hmm. this information we discussed yesterday actually did broadcast today. You know, but, but but at that time I already know because I I can access a lot of other sorts of news information. So I told you it was very severe. It turned out to be much severe. Mm -hmm. It was like yesterday. It, you know, it literally. 
I see that all the news media is like a 12-hour lag of that. I don't know what's happening. Do they want the political correctness, or they have to wait for Japanese government to confirm? Whatsoever, I do not know. So yeah. I'm also from Japan point of view, I mean, the market just crashed. It's down 10%. Um, what's going to happen next? Hard to say, because there's so many hedge funds. They, I don't know how much leverage they are using and what position they are. They could have a margin call right now. Sure. So... Uh, so that's been the whole chaotic market. I would, you know, that, as I mentioned to my subscriber in the past few weeks, uh, be careful, uh, accumulate some cash, and then wait for your, your time. You know, wait, I, I'm still in the wait-and-see mode. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to see, uh, have a clarity of the market, uh, of the market direction before, you know, uh, well, do I need to work. Well, Chen, we certainly do seem to be getting um, diverse reports. We're, we're, you know, on one hand, we're hearing reports that uh, this could be, you know, one of the worst tragedies uh, surpassing Chernobyl. On the one hand, on the other hand, we're getting reports that, well, maybe things are contained and it isn't going to be all that bad. Do you do you have a sense which way this is going, or or are you saying it's just impossible to know from where we sit over here as investors? It's hard to know that uh, that new nuclear power station has history of uh, uh, deceiving the public. You know they have uh, some other accident they try not to say. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it, it, those things it's hard to say. But from what I see, it seems to be they are containing. They're probably going to you know release more radiation, but not those very severe radiations. Uh-huh. So it really depends on wind blow. If a wind blow from you know, from the north or from from the east, they will blow to Tokyo, which blows to their big city. That's right. the problem. But on the other hand, it just blow to the Pacific Ocean. Maybe it's uh, it's better. So, uh, so we're so are we are we forced then to sort of invest on the basis of which way the wind blows? <laughs> so that, I mean, that's I, a pretty I, I, that's a pretty precarious way to invest, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so those kind of things are very hard to say. So I'm telling my subscriber to be very careful. And then, you know, once we go through this uh, rough period, there will be a lot of opportunity ahead. Chen, do you see, uh, do you see the potential? And we'll probably be asking this question of other guests on the show today. Um, you know, we've got uh, Nicole Foss is going to be with us. She's an expert on, uh, on nuclear safety. Um, and Bob Hoy will have some opinions, too, I'm sure. But do you see this uh, as as a threat to the global markets in some way? Might the Japanese, um, who have been great buyers of U.S. Treasuries, have to have to sell Treasuries and and go in and and re, you know finance reconstruction? Uh, and would that maybe mean that Mr. Bernanke is going to have to be more aggressive even in printing money to to uh, fund Treasury the U.S. deficits? Yes, exactly. That's what I'm feeling. Is the QE three is coming? Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you know, Japanese they they have to pull back some of their assets, and they probably going to also issue more bond, and, you know, more deficit spending, and then in addition, they probably going to uh, bring assets from overseas back. So uh, um, I don't know whether how much they invest in hedge fund they could, and then mm-hmm. that means the redemption of hedge fund. We know what happened in 2008, so that's it's not good. You know? Yeah. So are are you are you really Chen looking to to sort of build cash right here? Is that what you're trying to do? Oh, I, I already built cash a few weeks ago, so I'm holding on cash. Okay, Just, uh, excellent. Not, not not much buying right now. Okay, Chen, we're going to have to go to break. We're going to be talking. Um, uh, we're going to be uh, talking to our next guest in just a minute, uh, and uh, we're going to learn a little bit about his wonderful silver company, a company that's making lots of money. If you want to hang around, Chen, and listen, and maybe you have a question or so for Bob Archer, uh, you're free to do so. I'd love to have you. But in any event, folks, we are going to go to break. We'll be right back with Bob Archer, the president of Great Panther. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. 
Bakerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with Bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, this is the 15th of March, 2011, and the markets are coming under enormous amount of pressure uh, following the tragedies in Japan, uh, with, starting with the earthquake and then the tsunami of last Friday. And um, we are still trying to, the world is trying to get a handle on how much damage uh, and tragedy is, is, uh, has resulted from that. And, and so the markets are a bit roiled today. Uh, but there are, uh, I, I dare say, as a guy who's been around the, the markets for quite a few years, more than I'd like to admit, that, uh, in fact, times do stabilize, and a lot of times the opportunities come from disaster. Sometimes opportunities come, uh, are, are staring in the face a lot of times. It's hard to see them when you have a market meltdown, uh, declines like we've had. But the really great investors the people that are really that really have done well over the years are those that recognize value. And one company I think that does provide a great deal of value is Great Panther Silver. And I'm really pleased to have with me Bob Archer. He's the president of that company. I've known uh, Bob Archer for a number of years. It was actually down uh, to visit uh, his uh, company's Guanajuato project, silver mining project in Mexico a few years ago. Uh, great Panther is trading somewhere around $3.80 today. It's uh, taking a hit like everybody else. It's down about close to 10%, down 38 cents on the day. About 125 million shares outstanding. So that gives this company a market cap of just under uh, $500 million. Uh, Welcome, Bob, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks very much, Jay. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, Good to talk to you again. Really good to talk to you. We, uh, you know, I took a look the other day and realized that uh, our subscribers, this is before today's uh, declining price, but our subscribers are up some 750% on, uh, on their purchase if they bought Great Panther when I recommended it. Of course, I was in there at earlier prices and bailed out too early at one point, but did get back in, and we've done very well. So I want to thank you 
for your excellent work. I know that you've been working very hard. Long before the silver price rose very much, you were doing all kinds of things to cut costs and uh, and to improve profit margins. And now it, it really seems to uh, to have paid off. So I just want to thank you for your all your hard work and um, you know as a, as an owner of uh, shares in the company as well. So uh, can can you tell our listeners? Um, how much silver did you produce in 2010, and what we might expect uh, for the current uh, calendar year? Yes, sir. Um, well, from uh, from our two operations in Mexico, we uh, we produced a, a combined uh, silver equivalent ounces of uh, 2.255 million uh, last year, uh, so roughly two and a quarter million uh, silver equivalent ounces. And uh, this year, 2011, we're looking at producing a combined uh, 2.87. Uh, million ounces of silver equivalent, so a uh, fairly substantial uh, increase uh, this year, and uh, that's largely as a result of the uh, all the development work that we did last year, which was uh, the first year of our sort of three-year expansion plan at the uh, two operations. Okay, so you would be then in the second year now, so that that production number of two. Uh, 2.87 million ounces uh, equivalent would be this year. What do you think you can do the following year? Our target for uh, 2012 is, is still uh, 3.8 uh, million ounces uh, silver uh-huh. equivalent. And uh, uh, again, just, just coming through uh, increased production, uh, following up on all the development work and um, new equipment that uh, we purchased, uh, plant uh, improvements, uh, that type of thing. Sure. Well, could you tell our listeners just uh, perhaps give us a sense of what your cost is? You have two different producing mines. One right. is the Guanajuato and the other is the Topia. Could you give our listeners some sense of how much you produce from each of those mines and what the cash costs might be from those two different mines? Sure. It's, uh, the split is roughly one-third to Topia and uh, two-thirds to Guanajuato. And uh, Guanajuato is a silver gold mine, whereas uh, Topia is uh, silver lead zinc uh, with a little bit of gold. So, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we we uh, often uh, deal in silver equivalent because we're we're talking about four different commodities essentially. Sure. Um, even though I, I should point out that about 70, just over 70% of our uh, revenues come from silver, and uh, uh, about 20% or so from gold. And uh, only about 9% uh, comes from the, the base metals, from lead and zinc. So mm-hmm. we really are very much a precious metals company. Um, having said that, uh, the, uh, um, the production, or the, sorry, the, uh, I talked about that, the, uh, the costs are uh, they're, they're higher at Topia, mm-hmm. uh, Primarily because it's it's a narrow vein uh, type system, and sure. so the uh, you know the the mining costs are higher there. So they're they're more in the uh, sort of ten dollar or ten, you know ten eleven dollar uh, uh, per uh, per ounce mm-hmm. range. Um, that's per ounce of silver net of the byproduct credits. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, Topia tend or sorry Guanajuato tends to be uh, lower, uh, coming in uh, more you know closer to the six dollar range. So mm. the the two combined. Um, for uh, for 2010, uh, will be a little over seven, uh, but so we should see those uh, those costs uh, coming down uh, this year and on into uh, 2012 as we're producing more ounces. Uh, the uh, the unit costs uh, will come down. So, sure. Um, uh, so we should see uh, cost declining from here. So your economies of scale will help to reduce your unit costs. Uh, very interesting. When you look at uh, the price of silver, I'm not sure. Mm, where it is today? What is silver trading at today, more or less? Uh, right now, it's uh, thirty-four thirty. Wow! So, in, so listeners can get a sense of what their margins, what your cash margins are. Then, Bob, if you're looking at you know seven dollars, a little more all in, with uh, assuming the price of silver remains somewhere in this range, why clearly it's a very, very fat profit margin that you're enjoying right now. Yeah, absolutely, Jay. And uh, uh, I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago back uh, where we started. Uh, you know, when we founded the company back in uh, 2004, you know, silver was around uh, five dollars an ounce at that point. And uh, boy, how things have changed. So, you know, oh. back in those days, we we never would have dreamed that uh, we'd be seeing uh, these kinds of of silver prices. Uh, at least, certainly not on a sustained basis. You know, after the the days of of the 
of the Hunt brothers, um, you know, a lot of people were speculated that uh, we could see another spike to, uh, you know, $50 or, or, or some similar price. But, you know, to have it rise so consistently the way it has over the last few years and, uh, uh, you know, it's a fairly uh, sustained rise. So um, it certainly has had a very positive impact on, on our revenues and on the company in general. Sure. Can you, uh, so you, you talked a little bit about your three-year plan to expand production uh, with those two mines. Do you have some exploration potential either with those mines or elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Uh, uh, we, uh, in fact, we have a, a substantial amount of, of drilling planned uh, for, uh, for this year uh, for both of the mines themselves plus our new uh, San Ignacio project which is uh, just west of the uh, of the Guanajuato mine itself and uh, all told uh, you know we've got uh, well over 60,000 meters of drilling planned uh, for 2011 uh, when you add up those three projects um, we'll be doing about 30,000 meters of uh, mostly deep drilling at uh, Guanajuato uh, to uh, to test the uh, uh, the depth extension of the, the various ore bodies, mm-hmm. and most those are mostly below 400 meters in depth. And over at Topia, we'll be continuing to uh, expand uh, the veins and provide guidance for uh, for the miners. So, you know, another uh, uh, 6,000 meters plus uh, at Topia as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, San Ignacio is, uh, is the real. Um, uh, sort of uh, upside, I guess you could say, uh, or relatively new upside anyways, uh, for the company in that it was a, essentially a new discovery uh, just last fall mm. and something that we're, we're very excited about, uh, particularly given its proximity to our Guanajuato mine complex. Mm. Uh, it's only five kilometers due west, about 20 kilometers on the road, and so we can you know, run the exploration and development and ultimately the mining essentially out of Guanajuato. Mm. And uh, in the early days of developing that, we can truck uh, truck any ore that we get uh, around uh, that uh, that 20 kilometers back to uh, back to the plant for processing, and that way we can actually generate cash flow that helps pay for the development of the mine. So it's a nice position to be in. Oh, absolutely, and uh, that is exciting. Let me ask: you, Is that uh, target near surface then, Bob? The uh, the new discovery. It, uh, yeah, it effectively starts at surface, Jay. Um, mm. we, we have to drill some more holes close to surface just to see what the continuity is, but the veins do outcrop, and we've intersected them down to depths of three and sometimes 400 meters uh, and showing pretty good uh, vertical continuity. And so far, we've, uh, we've traced them at 50-meter uh, centers uh, to a little more than 150 meters. We've only drilled eight holes uh, on this so far, but uh, we're intersecting multiple veins with, with every hole. Mm. And uh, the grades are very good. The, uh, you know, the vein thicknesses are very good. So we're very, uh, very, very excited about this and very optimistic uh, about the potential for San Ignacio. Do you think it could be an open pit mine to start with, possibly? It's too early to say, perhaps, but is it, it and then an underground vein uh, target later on? Um, I, I don't, at this point, I don't think that it's likely to be open pit. Uh, the, the veins are still fairly discreet. Um, and so I think we're, you know, we're probably still looking at, uh, at an underground type situation. Uh, but uh, having multiple veins within you know, reasonable proximity to one another certainly uh, cuts down on the development costs. Uh, uh, so uh, that's, that just adds to the overall value. Uh, Bob, we only have uh, three or four minutes left, so I've got to keep moving through here. But you have, I noticed that you reported $1.3 million profit in the last, in the third quarter. Uh, your operating profits, so you know, from operations, was 5.8 million. Where is the uh, disconnect here? I mean, how, what is, why is there such a difference between the operating profits from your two mines and the amount that you show at the bottom line? Of course, yeah, it's taxes, probably. I don't know. Primarily, uh, two items, Jay. That uh, would be uh, exploration, which uh, you know, okay. is so relatively significant, and um, uh, and then just GNA. Uh, okay. You know, so uh, those those two items combined on a quarterly basis would be, uh, um, you know, probably somewhere in the in the neighborhood of three million. 
Oh, I see. Okay. All right. So, I mean, this is the idea, though, is that now you're able to finance your exploration, this exciting new discovery, and expand existing deposits uh, from cash flow and not have to go back to the market and raise more capital and dilute shareholder interest, which is really a good position to be in. I see you've extinguished some debt. Can you talk a little bit about your balance sheet now, Bob? Um, yeah, sure. Um, the, uh, the, the convertible notes uh, that we uh, did uh, expire just recently uh, were held by our, our major shareholder in London, and uh, they they came due. Those were four had a four year term on them, and um, you know the the price the strike price of two twenty five was was actually at a premium to market back when uh, when we did that deal back in 2007. Oh, good. Well, it was a, you know, it was a good deal for us at the time. We got the 4 million dollars that we needed to uh, to work with and uh, you know, they earned the uh, the 8% interest on that uh, during that period and now uh, the shares are are in the money and so they uh, they converted uh, they were going to expire in uh, in July anyways and so uh, they converted so they made a profit. We we got the money and everybody's happy. So it was a real win-win situation. Uh, do you, uh, just one more question, uh, Robert, uh, before we uh, part company now. But uh, do you do you ever consider hedging? We, we're at these high silver prices. Do you ever consider hedging uh, and locking in thirty-four dollars silver, for example, um, or or not? I, I know it sounds tempting, especially from you know where we've come from. But the, the overall environment, I think, for precious metals is still very strong uh, yeah. for the for the near term. So. Uh, we, we're still of the belief that, uh, that precious metal prices are going higher, so we're not in a rush to, uh, uh, to hedge any of our uh, silver or gold production. Okay, one more question. I'm going to demand an answer on this, a precise answer, Bob. I want to know exactly what the price of silver will be on December 31st, the year 2011. Can you tell me? Oh, uh, boy. Um, <laughs> I'm only kidding. Listen, I hate those questions. <laughs> well, I could I, give you a number, but... <laughs> yeah. No, you can give me a number and you won't I, know. I certainly but... think that we'll see $40 this year. You do think so. Okay. Well, it's a, it certainly would seem reasonable, and not necessarily for all the good reasons, but, you know, people are going to gold and silver because they're losing confidence in the uh, in the fiat money system. That's my little editorial. I'll add that. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know right now? Well, first of all, where can they follow your work? Well, yeah, the company is, I think, Great Panther. What's your website? Uh, yeah, it's just uh, www.greatpanther.com. And uh, ticker on uh, on Amex is uh, GPL, uh, and on uh, TSX is GPR. Um, just a, I guess a comment that uh, you know the recent rise that we've seen in in share prices is uh, largely attributable attributable to our, our listing on on Amex back on uh, February 8th, and that's brought a, a tremendous amount of uh, liquidity to uh, to the stock. We're trading uh, just huge volumes uh, recently, and uh, providing a lot of liquidity, which in turn uh, invites uh, a lot of the, the bigger funds to, to come in as well, because you know they like to uh, they like to see that liquidity. So it's uh, it's it's been uh, it's been great all around uh, for us uh, this year, and um, with our, our three-year expansion, we've uh, upped the budget to 57 million for the three years, and uh, all of that's paid for out of cash flow. So uh, we're sitting in a pretty good position right now. Excellent, Robert. Well, it's not just because you're on the Amex; it's because you've been a successful producer now too. Uh, those two combined uh, have really caused people to start paying attention to your company, one that I've been following for quite a few years. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thanks very much, Jay. It's been a pleasure. Uh, folks, don't go away because coming up next, Nicole Foss. She's a scientist who is an expert in nuclear safety, and she is also very knowledgeable about the global financial system. So I don't think you can afford to miss what Nicole Foss will have to say uh, in the next couple of minutes. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ms. Foss. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalysts going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. 
Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.sullivan.com to learn more. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.ca. For further information, Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try to you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am really pleased to have with me Nicole M. Foss. If uh, I, the first time I heard of Nicole Foss was, uh, I think, at Christmas time when I was with my brother Roger, who happened to hear her on Jim Papaba's Financial Sense uh, show, uh, another web show, and. Roger said, Jay, you know, you've just got, you have a lot of great guests on your show, but here's one that you've got to make sure that you get on your show. So I, uh, so I started doing a little bit of research on Nicole Foss and invited her onto the show, not realizing that, uh, of course, the things that were going to transpire in Japan uh, were going to happen. But Nicole, as it turns out, does have a considerable background in uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear safety. Uh, she writes under the under the name Stonely. Uh, she and her writing partner have been chronicling and interpreting the ongoing credit crunch as the most pressing aspect of our current multifaceted predicament. And with that, I must say, I definitely agree. I think the credit markets, and we're going to be talking to Bob Hoy later on, uh, the credit markets and the financial uh, situation that the globe uh, that the global markets are in right now is definitely very very serious. Uh, her site integrates finance, energy, environment, psychology, population, and real politique uh, in order to explain why we do find ourselves uh, in the crisis uh, that we are in. Until recently, uh, Ms. Foss ran the Agri-Energy Producers Association of Ontario with focus on farm-based biogas projects and grid connections for renewable energy. And that also is a subject that I'm somewhat interested in because in my newsletter we followed a couple of companies in the past that were, uh, that were in that uh, business. Uh, while in the United Kingdom, Ms. Foss uh, was a research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies specializing in nuclear safety in Eastern Europe and conducted research into electricity policy at the European Union level. Her academic qualifications include a Bachelor's of Science in Biology from Carleton University in Canada and a postgraduate diploma in air and water pollution uh, control. Welcome, Nicole, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. 
It's very, very nice to have you uh, on the show. You are talking to us from where today? Bratislava, Slovakia. Okay. Uh, very interesting. So I understand you do a fair amount of traveling, and you, you're really trying to go around uh, and, uh, and write and talk to people as much as possible to let them know what your views are. And so I'm really delighted to have you on this show to help get out to a fairly large number of people that listen to this show. We are the number one show on the Voice America business channel with uh, numbers that are pretty high, I'm very, very pleased to say. So uh, I can... I can be pretty sure that quite a few people are hearing what you have to say. So um, let's, let's just start out a little bit, though, because it's on everybody's mind right now, the things that are going on in Japan. How serious do you think this, this is? How serious is this, or is it too early to know yet? It's clearly the second worst nuclear accident in the history of the world. I think it will probably stay that way, is, is my view. It's significantly worse than Three Mile Island, because in Three Mile Island the containment held... You had a partial meltdown, but no real significant impact in terms of radiation, radiation release. In Chernobyl, you had an unbelievably large radiation release because you had a completely different accident mode that's possible with an RBMK reactor that is not physically possible with a boiling water reactor of the type that they use at, at Fukushima. Mm-hmm. In Chernobyl, because you have the kind of inherent instability that comes with the potential for a positive feedback loop, you, what you had was a runaway nuclear reaction that blew the lid off and then introduced air. The graphite moderator caught fire and turned the entire thing into a nuclear volcano, mm. which persisted for days and days, spewing enormous quantities of, of radiation all over most of Europe. I and mean, there, There's an enormous amount of fallout across the, the continent in different places. In Fukushima, there is no risk of of a runaway nuclear reaction. When the earthquake occurred, the reactors automatically shut down, as they were designed to do. The issue in Fukushima is station blackout. So what happened is there's no potential for, for cooling when you don't have electricity supplies. The electrics were in the basement of the buildings. The backup generators were on the coast. It's not the earthquake that that removed that capacity, it's the tsunami. Mm -hmm. And then the battery backups they had lasted maybe a few hours. Without power to the system, you can't cool the reactor. And even when a reactor is shut down, it continues to produce the heat of radioactive decay. In fact, so does spent fuel. So anything that has been used in a reactor will continue to produce heat, and you have to be able to pump coolant in order to prevent it melting down, and that's what they lost the ability to do. So what we've seen is, as as, as of the last time I looked a few hours ago, five explosions at Fukushima, including two at, at one unit, and at least in some of these places, the containment is almost certainly breached. In other places, it may have simply blown out parts of buildings. There's at least one of the units where the spent fuel uh, storage is, is an issue, where, where the coolant for that is, is compromised. But I, I think the worst-case scenario for Fukushima, really the worst-case scenario would be multiple meltdowns that would involve molten core material going through the bottom of the reactor pressure vessel and the containment potentially as far down as into the groundwater, in which case there would be steam explosions. And then you would spray bits of core around the area near where the plants are. I don't see this being the kind of risk that Chernobyl posed putting enormous quantities of radiation into the air that would then travel long, long distances. So I've seen people... Um, issue warnings for, say, the U.S. West Coast, saying everyone should be taking potassium iodide, I think that's that's a complete overreaction. Mm -hmm. Um, I doubt if you'd even really need to do that in Tokyo. Um, You probably do. In in the area around the plant, yes, Mm -hmm. those people should be taking potassium iodide, Mm -hmm. but I don't see this as being something that will spread enormous amounts of radiation over very long distances, but it probably will create an area that will have to be an exclusion zone for a very long time. Mm. 
Very interesting. So something between uh, Chernobyl and uh, and Three Mile Island, but but considerably yes. more serious than Three Mile Island, I guess. Obviously, yes, very much so. Um, you, you know, Nicole, we look at the probability of these kinds of things happening, and I would ask you, what do you think the probability of a 9.0 earthquake is? Yes, of course, Japan is in a tectonically active part of the world, but what is the probability first of that happening, a 9.0, which I guess is what the uh, seismologists have upgraded this to? Well, they, they originally had set the design basis accident at 7.9, mm-hmm. and they argued, based on relatively sparse evidence, that that would be enough. Personally, I think if, if people think that's enough, they should design a bit of safety margin in there. And although it's not actually the earthquake that caused the problem, it really was the tsunami, but a tsunami is a predictable follow-on to the kind of, of earthquake that we saw. There, there are ways of designing a, a system so that you would be less vulnerable to that. For instance, if you put all the electrics in the basement and you put the backup generators at a ground level on facing the coast, then they're vulnerable to to a tsunami in a way that they need not have been. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there are ways they could have relatively easily um, proofed that that plant against the effect of, of a tsunami. Mm-hmm. It withstood the earthquake. It just mm-hmm. didn't withstand the tsunami. Well, what I'm getting at here is that, you know, I'm trying to think as not as a scientist so much. Well, I mean, just as, a, you know, we live our daily lives, we cross the street, we, we're assessing probabilities of that truck coming down or can we get across there or not, you know, and so we make decisions. Um, what I mean, it was a very remote probability probably in the minds of the engineers that you'd have a 9.0 to start with, right? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm very convinced that they thought this was not possible. So they probably thought they were being reasonably conservative. Mm-hmm. Personally, I, I think they probably were not as conservative as they should have been. I think there are, there are clear um, problems with common mode failure, a clear vulnerability to station blackout that really was unjustifiable and unnecessary because it could have been addressed relatively easily. I take your point about when we make risk decisions, the kind of risks we protect ourselves against inevitably have associated costs. Mm -hmm. And we have to be aware that we cannot protect ourselves against everything that could conceivably happen, Mm -hmm. not without exponential costs that would make whatever enterprise we were considering just uneconomic from the beginning anyway. But in this case, I think they should have put more thought into it than, than they did. And there are another number of other parts of the world where the same argument is true. I mean, there are other places in the world where nuclear reactors have been built far too close to fault lines, and I think there's the potential for significant consequences of the kind that people perhaps were not taking into account. And, and for instance, there are a number of reactors in California that are far too near the San Andreas Fault. People would argue that well, you, it's not a mega-thrust fault, so you wouldn't get a magnitude 9.0. But nevertheless, we, we've seen a number of very large earthquakes around the Pacific Ring of Fire in the, in the last mm-hmm. relatively recent past. Mm-hmm. I would not rule out the possibility that something might happen on the west coast of North America. Mm-hmm. Now, it sure. may be more likely to happen in the mega-thrust area in the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. than, than at the San Andreas, but... But nevertheless, I think the seismic risk at the San Andreas is significant. There are other places in the world as well. Uh, for instance, Metamor plant in, in uh, uh, Armenia is right in an area where they had a, a massive earthquake of, of a comparable size, not quite as big as the Japanese one, but, but a very significant earthquake in 1988. And personally, I think reactors and fault lines simply don't go together. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are other areas where you can arguably operate a plant very much more safely. Sure. Well, again, getting back to this, so you had this this highly unlikely 9.0. Then you had uh, the, the 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 right kind of a of a um, of an earthquake, as I understand it. If you had a if you if you had a tectonic movement where both plates are moving, scraping against each other, that's one thing. But in this case, I understand that one plate dropped significantly and then disturbed the water and caused a tsunami. So you've got another probability there. It seems to me when you add the, I mean, it, what I'm getting at, it seems highly unlikely that, that this event would have happened. If you were looking at it, 
you know, in the past, as you were saying, mm-hmm. they didn't think it was likely that you would have a 9.0. They designed it mm-hmm. for a 7.9. And then on top of that, you've got an earthquake, but not just any kind of earthquake. It has to be the right kind of earthquake to cause a tsunami, right? But then if you have fault lines that suggest that kind of earthquake is mm-hmm. possible, then then you really need to take that into account. Whereas the San Andreas, for instance, is, is where plates slide relative yes. to each other. Mm-hmm. So you would expect lesser magnitude earthquakes mm-hmm. in, in Southern California, for instance, than you would have expected in Japan or in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's you know, certainly difficult to know these things, but also this plant or these plants were built, what, about 40 years ago or something like that? Yes, the, the six units at uh, Fukushima 1 are of that sort of age. They're, they're, there's also some the potential for involvement in this accident of four units at Fukushima 2 and also three units at Onagawa. Onagawa is actually closest to the epicenter, so, and, and there is a state of nuclear emergency in se- several other reactors, but it would appear at this point that they have not had a station blackout in, in those other plants, that they are at the moment able to at least maintain some cooling, although they are venting radioactive steam. So there is, there is a rise in temperature at both those other plants mm-hmm. that suggests that they're not uh, out of the woods yet. Mm-hmm. But... At the moment, they seem to be maintaining a greater degree of control than they managed at Fukushima 1. Mm-hmm. You have um, certainly um, you know, hit the nail on the head, Nicole, I think, when you said a moment ago about the cost benefits. Or you know, you, if you're going to design something so that there's no chance at all of anything going wrong, the cost would be so prohibitive that you wouldn't even begin to do it. So I, I like mm-hmm. your uh, your attitude about that. It seems to me, and I'm involved a lot in the mining industry, and I'm uh, Canadian mining companies, which I, I, I work with all the time, and we're realizing all the time that you know you're trying to avoid problems that occur, environmental requirements and so forth, and sometimes it seems as though things tip in one direction or the other too far. We had Three Mile Island and then Chernobyl, and that meant that the nuclear industry was basically off limits in terms of expansion and growing the industry again. And we had Chernobyl certainly scared the daylights out of most everybody, uh, in the, mm-hmm. even the most conservative people that would be inclined to build plants. Where do you think this is going to go now? Do you think this is this going to stop nuclear energy, uh, the, the growth, because we've now, you know, even environmentalists have sort of come around to believe that maybe this is a better way to go than, you know, if we want to reduce our carbon footprint, how are we going to do it? Well, nuclear has had, except for a couple of these extreme cases, has had, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty good track record, hasn't it? Well, in terms of, of not too many fatalities, yes, and we have a lot more fatalities in the coal mining industry, for instance, mm-hmm. than in nuclear power. In, in terms of reducing CO2 emissions, I think if you look at the whole life cycle of everything that goes into nuclear power, from the mining to the construction through to the decommissioning, you'd probably find that the benefits in terms of CO2 were really not that significant anyway. Oh. So I, I'm not looking at that as being any kind of major antidote, antidote to global warming, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, the fatality rate has been lower, but the, the risks are significant. And we do have to be aware that some of these risks are not high probability, but if, they, if the risk, despite the fact it's not high probability, is nevertheless catastrophic, Mm -hmm. then I think this is something we should not do. And I think that certainly applies to all RBMK reactors, that's Chernobyl-type reactors. Mm -hmm. I think the risks that you run from a plant like that are simply unacceptable, and they they should all be shut down. I believe there are still some operating in Russia. There certainly are when when I was doing the research I was doing. Mm -hmm. Other designs, if they already exist, I wouldn't necessarily close them down. I think the the alternative of having much less energy may be a lot less acceptable to people in certain areas than, than keeping the plant that they already have. But I do think there will be a major impact on the nuclear industry and its plans for expansion, and not just its plans for expansion, but its plans for extending the life of existing plants. For instance, in Germany today, they issued a, a decision that they were going to change their minds about extending the life of, of nuclear plants there. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing a very rapid backlash mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not like Germany is a seismic zone, mm-hmm. and arguably they could have operated those plants relatively safely for for longer. They could have extended the life. I mean, Canada, they extended the life of, of a number of plants, but the, the design there is, is a bit more problematic. I'm not really a fan of uh, can-do reactors. Mm-hmm. In some places, it makes it arguably makes sense to keep ones that we already have. Whether we want to build any more is a bigger question because I think we, we really have not come up with answers to some very significant issues. For one thing, the, the fuel that we're going to use, it's, it's not particularly clear. The uranium ores that we, that we rely on are reducing in quality. So there's not an enormous amount of, of the high-grade ores. That means that the net energy involved in mining these, these lower-grade ores gets worse. So the amount of energy surplus that you produce, the energy returned on energy invested, gets mm-hmm. worse as the ore grades fall. We haven't come up with any kind of realistic solution for using any other kind of fuel. I, I can't really see thorium reactors being viable, for instance. They haven't been developed yet. Breeder reactors have been tried but have been shut down almost everywhere they were introduced Places like Monju in Japan or Super Phoenix in, in France, these have experienced significant operating problems. They also have higher risks in a way. I mean, they use liquid sodium for a coolant, for instance, mm-hmm. typically. And then if you have an accident and you're dealing with a liquid sodium spill, the potential for, for fires and explosions is considerably higher. So I don't think we have solved where the fuel is going to come from, Mm -hmm. nor have we come close to solving what we're going to do with the spent fuel, with the nuclear waste. And we have not dealt with decommissioning issues. So in terms of the fuel, all the nuclear fuel that has ever been used in a reactor is sitting in what amounts to a swimming pool somewhere, probably near the reactor that created it. Mm -hmm. Not one country has implemented a long-term solution for nuclear waste. And in fact, you have to keep this stuff cool for decades before you can even really dispose of it in any kind of long-term way. Mm. Only the Finns are actually building a, a nuclear waste storage facility. In America, they considered Yucca Mountain, but that was, was quashed, and now they're trying to revive it. But, but there, there's been no really realistic proposal in, in America. No other country has come up with anything either. Some of them have thought about reprocessing with view to fast breeder reactors, but reprocessing creates enormous amounts of high-level nuclear waste in its own right and, and creates significant risks, too. So in Britain, the one reprocessing plant they introduced, the Thorpe plant, was shut down after only a very few years because of, of malfunctions. Mm. The other thing we haven't dealt with is decommissioning. You have to leave these plants to cool down for and maintain them and cool them for a long period of time before you can actually dismantle them and look at disposing that what it will be a, a very radioactive set of, of remains. Mm-hmm. We, we haven't looked at how you would deal with the cost of that because who is going to be able to put aside the money during the operating phase? Who is going to be putting aside the money that decades from now would cover the cost of decommissioning? Uh, right. That simply doesn't happen. So that means the cost of decommissioning is being imposed on future generations that will not have an income stream to pay for it mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. So I yeah. think that the question marks over the future of nuclear power are enormous. And some of them are to do with safety. Others are simply to do with cost. Mm. And others are to do with net energy. And, and whether, in fact, you actually achieve a benefit in terms of CO2 emissions, whether the net energy available from this is, is actually higher than the minimum required for civilization, I'm not convinced on any of those points. Mm. Doesn't sound like there's any easy solution to uh, to our energy demands. Uh, we uh, uh, energy uh, consumption seems to go along with prosperity to a great extent. Uh, the the West has enjoyed a standard of living that's unparalleled in the history of man. There are people, of course, aspiring to have the sort of living standards that we've enjoyed in the United States and Canada and Western Europe and so forth. Uh, in China and in India far more populous areas than, than we have, than, than I live in here in the U.S. 
How is this all going to shake out, Nicole? Because uh, I guess this is something we'll want to talk about as soon as we come back from the commercial break. But no easy answers. Not in my backyard, everybody says. Uh, No, we don't want to spend, we want to enjoy things today, but we don't want to worry about the costs that are passed on to future generations. It seems to me sort of a human self-centered human characteristic. We don't want to worry about the debt that we're throwing on our children in the future as well. So I think we're going to go to to a break now. When we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about with uh, Nicole Foss uh, in terms of energy and some maybe some alternative energies that we might look to in the future, some uh, healthier energies. Hopefully she'll have some ideas along those, way, along those lines. And also, I really want to talk to her about the credit markets, about the global financial situation, because I know she has some important things to say there, too. So we're going to go to break now, and we'll be right back with Nicole Foss. Don't go away. Community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. TSX. 